Oh, well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> good morning, Springville. Uh, so good to be with you. Um, it, it's funny, I don't get all that many opportunities to see myself on video. Uh, that, that's quite the thing. Uh, that is a humbling experience, and uh, I, I always hear, man, you speak too fast, and I, I didn't realize how fast I go. Um, I do need to share the responsibility that, with that with Paul, um, who I love, and he uh, so graciously sent me an email and said, here's 85 questions, if you can answer those in three minutes. Uh, Totally kidding. Um, But uh, yeah, we love you guys. We are so thankful for you. It's such a blessing for me to to be here. And um, I was just thinking, uh, it was just a number of years ago, as we were part of this whole church planting process, that I found myself in this room full of clipboards, absolutely paralyzed in fear. (laughs) It was quite the experience. I had never had anything like that before. And and if, it, if you'd allow me to sort of back it up a little bit, I won't go like all the way to my childhood or anything like that, but about a year and a half before that point, we had entered into this whole church planting process. And, and over that year and a half, I had, I think, maybe like nine interviews and filling out pages and pages of, of application kind of stuff. And I had preached numerous times in church and at uh, youth and a young adults meeting and in this ministry that we were starting at a university and had led a missions trip over to Romania and so on and, and did all of these things that kind of help show other uh, church leaders, uh, hey, I, I feel like I've got this calling from God to church plant in Peterborough. Can you see it too, Right. And so I spent about a year and a half just doing all of these things and learning and growing, and I was so thankful for that. And then I got to this point where I'm uh, in the training, and uh, I was tasked with, I'm going to give you 10 minutes, right? I was given a three-minute video. I think that thing was over five, right? So you just imagine how good I do with 10 minutes. Um, We want you to preach a, a sermon in 10 minutes, and I wasn't the first one to go, so instead I'm sitting in this boardroom, I've got my own clipboard, and I'm watching other people go before me, and as they're preaching, I'm watching one after another after another of these guys just get absolutely shredded, right? Just ripped apart for their 10 minutes, and one guy was actually sent home because they told him, man, you don't have what it takes to be a church planter, Whew. right? And, and so as that was stirring inside me, I was given a 10-minute window to gain the approval of a handful of guys. And I gave in to the pressure to perform, and I blew it. It's one of those stories. Not that like, hey, I you know, swung for the fence, and right? I, I felt this crushing weight, and, and that pressure got to be too much in me, and I just froze, and I blew it. I allowed my fear to win, and I failed because of it. So I want to invite you to, to grab your Bibles. If you'll turn with me, let's go to Acts chapter 19. And why we're going here is because I want us to see, as we spend a little time studying this passage, how it is that we can glorify God with our lives by not you know, falling under the fear, but instead facing our fear of failure. So as you're turning there, I, I can't hear pages, but you know, maybe you guys are a little bit more technologically savvy than, than our church, but uh, as you're going to Acts chapter 19, just let me give you a quick context. So the book of Acts is this incredible story of the Holy Spirit working through his church, planting churches throughout the world as the gospel goes and transforms lives, and Paul is one of those guys that experienced the gospel and then had the opportunity to take that gospel, and so he goes about just sharing the gospel wherever he goes and planting these churches and raising up elders and so 
on. And by the time we get to chapter 19, he's in the city of Ephesus. And he spends two years there basically sharing with anyone that would lend him an ear, sharing with them about Jesus to the point where verse 10 actually tells us, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that incredible? Let's just look down in the next few verses because instead of just saying like, hey, he was there for two years, I love that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, actually allows us to look a little bit deeper. And he says, hey, this is kind of a little glimpse of what the ministry looked like while he was there. Are you with me? Look at verse 11. It said, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, that's pretty wild, isn't it? Uh, like, like, that is an incredibly amazing story, but if I have to be honest with you, I, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable as well, right? Because of my background and so on, I would think of something like this and be like, man, I, I feel like that's like an episode on TBN, and it should be followed up with like a big ask for me to send more money or, or you know, touch a screen and that kind of thing. But what I want to do is show you what Luke has just told us here already of of some important differences. The first thing is, uh, who is it in this passage that's doing the miracles? See, in verse 11, it gives us a hint there that it's not Paul. It's not the, you know, super Paul with the big P on his chest instead of an ass, and he's got this, you know, cape flying in the wind and so on. But instead, verse 11 tells us God was doing these things by the hand of Paul. That's important. And what kind of miracles did the passage say he's doing? It says extraordinary, extraordinary. I don't know if you're with me, it strikes me as funny, right? As in it's extraordinary, as in um, even more out of the ordinary than miracles already are, right? Is that helpful? And here's the point. God was doing something special here. God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul in a city that was known throughout all the land as the authority on magic and sorcery and witchcraft. And why Paul? Well, if we had the time, right, if we'd been walking through this book together, what we would find is that Luke, by the time we get to chapter 19, has already showed us this track record of Paul since uh, 10 chapters earlier or 20 years earlier where Paul met Jesus and his life was absolutely transformed. See, Paul's entire ministry, as we're watching him across 20 years, is that he is never about his own gain, but instead quite the opposite. He has been clearly and consistently all about Jesus, no matter what it was going to, not gain, but what it would cost him. And so God does something extraordinary, but he does it by the hands of a man that just consistently, always, and even here right now, glorifies God by taking whatever God gives him and he points people back to towards Jesus. You with me so far? Like, in this story so far, God is the miracle worker, right? And he does this through Paul. So what's Paul's responsibility in this? Basically to keep giving his hands over towards God and let God use him to point other people towards Jesus no matter what it's going to cost Paul. And this right here is the first example of facing our fear of failure. The first option for us, if we were like, hey, I'm done with this whole fear crippling my life and so on, what we saw just from these two verses is, hey, here's an option. You can live like Paul. 
You, you can have such a pursuit of Jesus in your life that it's so consuming that nothing else has value to you outside of him, right? Isn't that what we see in the life of Paul? I think that's awesome. It's a little overwhelming maybe for some of us too, right? If you're like me, you're like, oh, that's really great, and I can see that in the Bible too, but what about me, right? What do I do on Tuesday? And, and so I think it's, you know, for those of us that, that need, you know, maybe some extra steps, we're going to continue reading. So look at verse 13 with me. It says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, apparently that's a thing, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. See, this is where the story starts taking a little bit of a twist. You see, some people will see the benefits of Jesus, right? Or or more specifically, the benefits of using the name of Jesus, of coming close to Jesus, and then they actually just stop right there, right? They're like, hey, I, I gained something that's enough for me. This is great. So for these Jewish exorcists, there's no evidence here that they're actually following after Jesus, right? There's no repentance, there's no faith, there's no you know, transformation of their life as they lay things down before Jesus and they're like, hey, you are my savior, my king, my lord. There's none of that here. Instead, what we see is that they just kind of keep on doing the thing that they've always been doing, but now they've stamped this Jesus name on their bag of tricks in hopes that it's actually gonna you know, ramp up business and things are gonna go a little bit better for them. And here's where I think this needs to start hitting home for us, right? Where we can realize that maybe we're not so different from them, right? At first you're thinking, man, I'm, like, I'm not trying to exercise anything, right? Like, let alone like picking up weights. I'm, I'm not even into that kind of exercise. Um, anyway, masks, it's hard. It's, it's a difficult thing. Anyway, <laughs> but, but, but just stick with me on this. Because, okay, like, participation, um, all the guys in the room, how many of us that grew up in the church, basically we looked forward to going to, to youth group because of the cute girls? Come on, right? Well, I, I know we're Baptists, but we can do this, right? So like two, two three guys that, you know. Okay, awesome. Ladies, all right? Ladies in the room, and maybe I should have started with you. How many of you went to youth group when you were growing up, not because you were just super excited to read your Bible with other people and so on, but you're like, hey, I bet there's gonna be some cute guys there. Come on. Okay, all right, all right, love you guys. Maybe it's the lights, I can't see all the hands. Okay, what about this? You're thinking, okay, I gotta get for myself this, this great wife or a husband, and we used to joke around about this, about how uh, some of the ladies that had come to bridal college are looking for your MRS degree, right? right? You, you get close to Jesus because you can find some good guys or some, some good ladies that, that love Jesus. Or maybe you're in that situation where you're, you know, you're looking forward to getting married, you're kind of courting with someone, and so you're like, hey, I'll just keep on going to church until we get married, and then that's going to be good enough. Or maybe you've just really appreciated coming to church because of the work context that it gives you. Or, or maybe there's been family pressure, and you just, you know, so you, you, you come to church, you, know, you come close to Jesus because it's easier to do that than to, you know, face the scowls or whatever of maybe your mom or your wife or someone like that. Or maybe you bring your kids here because you wanna, want them to learn some better morals, right? And, and come alongside of a church of like raising good kids. Or maybe all you're here for is just to get your fire insurance, right? Like you literally like don't really care all that much about Jesus, but when you're thinking about hell, you're like, I, I'm pretty sure he's a better option. And so, yeah, I'll just keep doing this whole Christian thing. And by the way, whatever it is, welcome. 
Like I, I love that in my own life, the Lord used things like that to continue to draw me in close to him, right? I was the guy that went to youth group for that reason, not why I went to Bible college, right? But I love that he did that in my life, and so I'm just, my prayer for you is that if you find yourself in one of these spots as well, that God would be so gracious to work in your life in the same way, right? He's patient, he's loving and caring, and he'll walk this journey with us, continually just pulling our hearts in. But there's also this other element there is because because he loves us, God will meet us in that place, and sometimes he'll actually do some pretty difficult things. We'll, We'll get hurt. We'll have an experience that that becomes overwhelming. And God will allow us to feel pain in order to wake us up and tear the blindfold from our eyes that maybe we didn't even realize we were wearing. So let's look back down. Look at verse 14 with me. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So I I just want to slow down for a moment and just remind us, like, these are real guys, right? Like, this isn't some made-up story. Like, these are real people like you and I are real people. They have real emotions. They have real baggage. They have, you know, real lives. And so what do we know about them so far? They're described as the seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, right? And if you were to to do that thing, you're going to jump this week into, like, checking into what I said, and you're going to pull up commentaries and so on, you're probably going to find that there's this wrestling over, like, who Siva was, and there's all these concerns of, like, man, like, he's not in the the records of being a high priest, and maybe he's, like, you know, uh, taking on someone else's name, maybe it's a false identity, maybe he's actually the high priest of some sort of a religion or cult that's happening in Ephesus. I have no idea. I don't think... I should even care about that because I don't think that's nearly as important as the reality is that his name is what these seven men are living under. And I think the weight of that is what some of us know as well, right? Like maybe you grew up in a home where you heard things like, man, the McConnells are winners, right? Or or fill in the blank, no no son or daughter of mine blank, right? Right? Or maybe you've had this crushing pressure on you of what other people have put on you because they know your parents and their positions and education and status and what they have accomplished and they look at you and they're like, why aren't you a doctor too, right? Or maybe it's our kids that they're living under this pressure, the weight of the shadow that we have unknowingly probably cast on them, right? The things that they believe about us are like, man, I gotta, I gotta live up to uh, you know, my dad's name or my mom's name and what they have been doing. In any case, what we have in this passage is seven men that don't have their own names. Seven men carrying the name and the title of their dad as a banner over their life, over every failure and every success. Do you think these men do what it felt like to have this pressure to succeed? Do you think they also felt the crushing weight of the fear of failure? I think so. We carry this weight, don't we? We don't want to be the, the one in our family or in our, the one in our, our class or our grade that actually fails, right? We, we don't want to be the one in our friend group that, that's unemployed, right? Months go by and we still can't find a job and we're embarrassed of that. We don't want, to, want people to find out how scared we are, how hard it's been, how overwhelmed we've, been, we've become trying to um, keep this whole thing going, right? 
the lifestyle, the reputation, the veneer of this great marriage that we have and this, this family that's always getting along and having a great time, right? Post that and so, right? All these pressures that we have with our clean house, our new car, our organized desk, the, the, the list goes on, right? And what happens here in this story is that when the seven sons of Siva hear that there's power in the name of Jesus, they fight the fear of failing one name by simply adding two others. What did verse 13 say? I adjure you, right? Speaking to the evil spirits, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Isn't that great? Like, just, just in case Jesus' name isn't enough, I don't know, this Paul guy seems to be doing some pretty wild stuff, let's throw his name in the mix too, just in case. And I, I don't want us to miss how brilliant it is in verse 15 when these evil spirits then actually reply to these seven sons. And what do they say? Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Like, isn't that just like our enemy? Our enemy knows our weakness. He knows how to to come up to us and stick his finger in as hard as he can into this place where the, the, the bruise is the deepest in us, right? Who are you? Isn't that a great question? I mean, so far from what we know in the Bible of them, like how is it that they would answer this? Ah, I'm one of the sons of Siva, uh, I, I'm, I'm one of the seven brothers. Uh, I am uh, an exorcist, or at least I thought I was, but it doesn't seem to be going all that well right now, right? But what happens is they actually aren't even allowed to answer. They, they, they're not even given a chance. Look back with me down to verse 16. And, then, and uh, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Can you imagine that? Their vulnerability was exposed before everybody. The veneer of the names that they had kind of stamped on themselves, that, that those had been peeled off of them like the clothes off of their back, and they were forced to face their fear by failing. Like, this is an extremely humbling experience, and this is definitely one that I never thought would happen to me. When I was told that I was no good at preaching, when I was told that I did not have what it takes, that I would not be a church planter, I honestly had no idea up until that point how much I had actually allowed for my ministry identity to define who I was until all of a sudden that was suddenly stripped off and gone. Failure is terrifying, isn't it? And yet, I believe it was exactly what God needed to do in my life to bring about the change in my life that I desperately needed and didn't even realize. And I think the same is true for these men. They were once the seven sons of Siva, and now they're running naked from what the ESV Bible, study Bible and its notes would tell us is a reverse exorcism, right? When the demon casts the exorcist out, man, that's humiliating. And honestly, for me, at this point in my life, when I got this shake up and when I was humiliated, 
It actually got worse for me for a while after that. Because my failure, my fear became worse and it crippled me until God exchanged the lies that I was believing for the truth from his word that I am a child of God, that I am forgiven, that I am loved, that I am never more valued than I, when I was still at my worst when Jesus chose to lay his life down to save me. Amen? Come on, you might not raise your hand, but like we gotta be a part of this, right? This is who we are. This is our identity. Praise God, he did the squeezing and shaking in my life so that I would wrestle through that before I ever got back in front of a pulpit again to realize, man, this is the identity that we have. Get it from here, not from the praise or the booze of people. Do you know how freeing this is? I went from being crippled in performance anxiety to freedom, from fear of failure to understanding that I get to be a part of God's ministry. Not because of something that I'm bringing to the table, but because Jesus is God and my life is in him. So the seven sons of Siva and myself, we both took option number two and we faced our fear of failure through failure. What about a third option, right? Because you're like, man, the Paul one was up here, the failure one. I don't want to do that one. There's got to be something else for us, right? And there is. What would a proactive approach to taking steps to face our fear of failure actually look like? Well, thankfully, we have that as well. So if you'll just join me again, let's look at verse 18. It says, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of who? Of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Not that awesome? You see, what we just read about there is the church, right? These are the believers that are literally burning the things that they had been still holding on to in order for them to actually go forward proactively, right? For some, it was a practice. For others, it was an object. And I don't want us to kid ourselves. This hurt, right? Failing in option two hurt. Proactively seeking out the things that are in your life that need to be tossed out and burned maybe even before other people, that's gonna hurt as well. Remember, this is Ephesus. This will become one of the greatest examples of a gospel-centered community that we have in the whole of the New Testament, and it started as the city that had found its identity in sorcery and magic and witchcraft, which by their nature, all of these things are in opposition towards God. And we read that the believers gathered up once they, what they had once called the Ephesian letters, right? Like that's how well known Ephesus was to the rest of the world as they would write these letters. The Ephesian letters was literally their sorcery books that they were selling throughout the world. The books that represented their life before Jesus that they were still holding on to and they burned them. You think this took faith? Do you, th- do you think anyone was afraid of giving up what they had once known and believed and trusted in to, to just get rid of that whole thing and say, I'm fully devoted, I'm fully in Jesus and nothing else? What about this? Do you think there was any fear in them of being judged for, for uh, hauling into the light what they had been hiding maybe in their homes? What about this? Do you think they were ever afraid of how many trips it was gonna take 
in front of their neighbors, in front of the people that go to their church, the people that they had worshiped Jesus beside, is they're like, man, he's got like another wheelbarrow of stuff, right? Oh my goodness, I, I, I thought we had dealt with all this in the first fire. Oh, oh man, he went back to his house and he found other things that he wants to submit before God. But they wanted to get it all out. And yet verse 19 says that the value of it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Just for us to get a a little grasp on that, that's 50,000 days wages, right? That would take us 160 years of six-day work weeks. We're like, man, we only work five, if that, right? 160 years if you're taking a one-day Sabbath in the week. And they burned it. Why? Why would they do this? It's worth so much money. It's so valuable, right? Because in comparison to Jesus, the only value that these, still, these things still had was the testimony that would rise with these expensive flames. You with me? And with their act of faith, the message would be clear to all that with Jesus, there was no longer any room left for fear. Fear of ever needing to go back to their old ways. Fear of failing in someone else's eyes rather than following God's will for our lives. And fear of the loss that comes with failure. The fear that would come if we still believe that this world had anything to offer us that could be greater than what we have already received by faith in Jesus. In John 3.30, John the Baptist told his disciples about Jesus. He said these words, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, John was on mission to use his life to glorify God. Paul, like we had just read and throughout you know, the rest of Acts and so on, he, did, he was on this same mission. Whatever it took, whatever it costs, I'm gonna give my life to glorify God by pointing people towards Jesus. See, I think the key to facing our fear of failure is that Jesus must become greater. He has to increase in our lives. As we strip away all of the the junk and the sin and the secrets and the the, the things that we're holding on to and and honestly, let me put it out there, the distractions in our lives that would then allow us to grab hold of our new life, our new identity, and the strength that's found only in Jesus. Amen? All right, let me just close and pray for you guys. Again, so thankful to be able to be here with you. We love you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for this room full of people and whoever's uh, with us online. God, opening up Bibles together, speaking about you. God, I just pray that um, even if we've heard this thousands of times before about the gospel and our life in Jesus, God, that, that you would just use this moment through your Holy Spirit to show us the things in our lives that need to be thrown into that wheelbarrow, brought onto the front yard and burned, whatever that looks like. And God, the reality is, is that we're probably not strong enough to do it on our own, but what's great is that we don't have to. God, we have you, you who loves us, you who gives us the strength. God, your Holy Spirit can even show us the things that need to be submitted before you if we would ask. And then we have our Christian community. God, that has been called to encourage us, to stand with us, to help edify one another, to build one another up because we are the church. It's not about a building. This is about lives being pointed towards Jesus. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us do these things. 
That God, fear would no longer be able to, to, to imprison our lives, but instead you would show us how as we keep leaning in and we keep pursuing Jesus and we do this together, that God, you erase these fears. You give us the courage and the strength that we need to face them and to overcome them to the glory of God. So Father, I just thank you again for the opportunity to come together and to worship you like this. Thank you for our Springvale family. I just pray that you would continue to bless and protect them as they are faithful to God's word. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.